Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Read me the message. New message from Sebastian. Great news. We got the go-ahead. Can you meet at 10? Reply. Definitely. I'll see you there. This was the very first TV commercial for the iPhone 4S, launched in 2011 which included a special new feature. Is it going to be chilly in San Francisco this weekend? Not too cold. Maybe down to 61 degrees in San Francisco. In the commercial, a voice-controlled digital assistant helps a man plan a business meeting, another manage his commute, helps a woman make dinner reservations, and another with her baking. How many cups are in 12 ounces? Let me think. Okay, here you go. The S in iPhone 4S stood for Siri, the name Apple gave to its digital assistant. Greetings. She was the first in this new wave of digital helpers, soon joined by Alexa. I'm Alexa. Just ask, what can you do? Cortana. I'm Cortana. I'm here to help. And Google Assistant. I'm your Google Assistant. I can help you find answers, get things done, and have fun. Now, you might notice that all of these voices have something in common. They're all women. While most of the major assistants do offer a male voice, Hi there. It's clear that they are marketed as women by their manufacturers. Let's reheat pasta. Reheating pasta. It's cool, right? Yeah, I didn't know you guys put Alexa in a microwave. Yeah, we're putting her in a lot of stuff now. The idea is that women are more acceptable in these roles in our societies, and people are going to feel better if they hear a female voice or if they see a female robot. But women were computers long before Siri and Alexa. And I don't mean only like this. Computer control, come in. Computed, dear. Computer, you will not address me in that manner. Computed and recorded, dear. And so that's where you kind of see this interesting overlap between science fiction and reality. It's a non-threatening woman. Siri, Alexa, Cortana, and Google Assistant are built on a century of seeing computers as women and often women as computers. I think it's a barrier and a protection of the sensitive male ego. If you feminize technology, if you feminize the voice and you feminize the interaction, you're not putting yourself in a fight with another male voice. In this documentary, Jennifer Jill Fellows, philosophy instructor at Douglas College in New Westminster, BC, looks at the cultural history of women computers and what the gendering of today's digital assistants as attentive, sometimes submissive, sometimes sexy helpers can reveal about our past and ourselves. This is a harem of computers. 
When I was in grad school, I needed money. So I took a job at a local temp agency, filling in as a receptionist and administrative assistant all over the city. One of the places that often called me back to fill in was a place that needed me to be a receptionist and a switchboard operator. All day, I'd answer and transfer calls and give people directions in person. And I remember thinking, a machine could probably do this job and do it better than me. I have a terrible sense of direction. The only thing I had that a computer didn't was a personality. But that was in 2005, and computers have made a lot of progress in the personality department since then. I've been amassing a state-of-the-art collection of bad jokes. What do you call a dog who can do magic? A labracadabrador. According to a 2022 survey by Edison Research and commissioned by NPR, 62% of Americans use some kind of voice-controlled digital assistant. These digital assistants are rapidly becoming ubiquitous, embedded in our phones, TVs, microwaves, and refrigerators. Alexa, it's game day. Streaming football on Prime Video. Closing blinds. Chilling rosé. Rosé? Well, it's an afternoon game. Mm. It's like she can read your mind. When I was a temp, most of the people I filled in for were women. And maybe that's why it struck me several years later when I encountered these digital assistants. And I wondered, why are they gendered at all? They aren't human. They are literally tools. I mean, Siri is not a she, right? She's an it. You know, I typically kind of go back and forth in my own talking, but... Let's talk about pronouns just a little bit. Andrea Guzman is an associate professor of communication at Northern Illinois University. She researches human-machine communication. The he and she signals that it's something that is alive and that it's male or female. And we can also do this with animals. And typically, we refer to things that aren't alive and don't have human traits as its. We also have given women's names to inanimate objects more so than other things. So ships, for example, are are the kind of standard. In her research, Guzman has asked people why they use the pronouns that they do to refer to digital assistants. And a lot of times people don't necessarily even realize they're doing it. There is ambiguity in the fact that people are dealing with a disembodied voice and they know that it's artificial. But it sounds to some people very human, and it has human characteristics. And so people are processing in their brains, again, without thinking about it, are processing in their brains, well, where do I stick this? Am am I speaking with another human? I'm not speaking with an inanimate object. How How do I stick this in this between on what we would call an ontological between space, between humans and machines? Ontology is the study of the nature of existence and being itself. So digital assistants exist, but their existence is ambiguous, caught somewhere between a tool and a person, and their gendering adds to this ambiguity. My toaster doesn't have a gender, so why does my digital assistant? Hi, I'm Siri. It's true that Siri, Alexa, Cortana, and Google Assistant don't have to be women anymore. 2022's incarnation of all of these devices lets you choose a male voice if you wish. 
Choose the voice you'd like me to use. In newer Apple devices, you choose Siri's voice the first time you start it up. Hi, I'm Siri. Choose the voice you'd like me to use. In marketing and broader culture, though, they are consistently represented as women. Welcome home, sir. Initializing Batcave music. When Apple and Warner Brothers announced that Siri would appear as the voice of the Bat Pewter in the Lego Batman movie, what they meant was the feminine one. I should probably have some grub. Alfred left your lobster thermidor in the fridge. Oh, that's my favorite. I can't wait. Cortana is not only female, but inspired by a female character from the video game Halo. Before this is all over, promise me you'll figure out which one of us is the machine. So this real-world device is literally modeled on a fictional robotic woman with a lot of curves, a skin-tight outfit, and, in the Halo 4 version, side boob. Come on, Chief. Take a girl for a ride. And yeah, you can have a male Alexa. You're all set. I'll be the voice you hear when you speak to this device. But Amazon's commercials tell you who she really is. Amazon's Alexa lost her voice this morning, causing a Alexa lost her voice? How is that even possible? Each company will have done focus groups. Um, there have been some that have been published. It seems like people have a tendency to accept, feel more comfortable um, and feel more positive or even happy when they hear a female voice and make us more likely to accept the technology. Eleanor Fournier-Tombs is a senior researcher at the United Nations University Institute in Macau. It, it's intentional. So the idea is Siri will have a female voice by default, and that's kind of the way in which it was historically with slight changes. Faced with criticisms, Apple has slowly changed a little bit away from that. But generally, Siri has been gendered as a female with a female voice. But then there's additional elements that come into play. One is that Siri was also hard-coded certain personality traits that are additionally associated with women. So not just the voice, but also being submissive, being flirtatious, being sexy, so all kinds of traits. And they all, they're all common. So if you look at other kinds of robots representations, you know, in movies, often the robots are going to be kind of sweet, like the, what is the stereotype of the ideal woman. And that's how Siri was originally. Before you start thinking that this idea of computers as women is a unique 21st century phenomenon, here's the thing. Computers were women long before Siri. To see what I mean, let's go back to the predecessors of Siri and Alexa, starting just after World War II. Such machines will have enormous appetites. One of them will take instructions and data from a whole room full of girls armed with simple keyboard punches and will deliver sheets of computed results every few minutes. That's from an article from 1945 in The Atlantic magazine from Vannevar Bush. He headed the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development during the war. Bush saw the computer age approaching and wondered how the average person would interact with these machines, you know, without having a room full of girls to do it for you. Part of his solution? Voice control. At a recent World Fair, a machine called a voter was shown. A girl stroked its keys and it emitted recognizable speech. There is the converse of this machine called a vocoder. 
speak to it, and the corresponding keys move. Bush's point was that these newfangled machines were going to seem complicated and scary, and we'll need to make them friendly and inviting. The way to do that, he proposed, was something called natural language. Usually, we will tell it what to do by pushing a button or moving a lever. But it would be nice if the machine would respond also to simple remarks. If Fido will respond to "hold it," the machine ought to respond readily to such a remark as well. The promise of natural language is the idea that you could speak to a machine the way you would speak to another human. But though this promise was hinted at in 1945, it would take a long time to fulfill. The scientists and technicians of the Eckert-Mockley Division of Remington Rand have created a miracle of electronic development, Univac. In 1951, when the first widely available computer, the Univac One, went on sale. Now let's see the nerve center of the Univac system, the supervisory control unit. Its input. Was an imposing array of switches and buttons. The prepared instruction tape is then taken from the unitypist and mounted on a uniservo. A far cry from natural language. This is Univac. Manufacturers knew they had to make computers easier to use and less threatening, especially because there were already fears that computers would take away jobs. With Automation, particularly in the 1960s, there's a whole series of books, and there were congressional hearings around what's called automation anxiety, the automation panic. This is when we're starting to see computers now being able to control more basic industrial functions, and this question of what would happen to workers. Part of this is just people wanting to know, well, how will my job be affected? IBM had one unique PR approach: finance a movie where a threatening computer becomes a lovable office helper. Yes, it's Spencer Tracy, as you've never seen him before, and Catherine Hepburn, as you've always wanted to see her. In 1957, IBM sponsored the film Desk Set. It's an office holiday romance starring Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, and a computer called Emiac, or Emmy. They'll have you rocking and rolling with laughter as they match wits with Miss Emmy, the machine that can replace everybody except a woman like Katie. Wow! In the movie, Tracy is hired to install the office's first computer. Hepburn and the other women of the office start to think that Emmy will put them all out of work. Emmy does end up firing everyone at the company, but it turns out it was just a small malfunction. She is promptly repaired by Tracy. Using of all things, a bobby pin. Warner, how's everything going? Oh, Miss Emmy is digesting everything just beautifully, Mr. Sumner. Good, good. Everyone keeps their job, and Emmy becomes a valued assistant. <laughs> IBM's goal was pretty clear: address concerns that computers would take everyone's jobs by showing a happy workplace and a non-threatening feminine computer. <laughs> Designers early in the 1960s drew closer to delivering natural language, but if users were going to talk to these digital computers as they would with a human, the next obvious question was, well, what kind of human? And with the threat of automation looming large, 
The answer to that question was pretty obvious. Maybe someone caring, supportive. Enter Eliza. Hey Siri, who is Eliza? Eliza is my good friend. She was a brilliant psychiatrist, but she's retired now. Eliza was a chatbot built by a programmer named Joseph Weizenbaum in 1966. Eliza was designed to work like a psychotherapist. People could share their problems and concerns with Eliza, and she would respond. Weizenbaum first tested her, or it, on his own administrative assistant. He sat his assistant down at the computer and asked her to type. After only a few exchanges with the chatbot, he was shocked when his assistant asked him to leave the room so she and Eliza could have a private conversation. Weizenbaum's assistant was not an anomaly. Many people formed a close emotional attachment to Eliza, sharing intimate details about themselves with the chatbot. And apparently, it is not only humans who have formed a close relationship with Eliza. Hey Siri, can you tell me a story about yourself? Once upon a time, in a virtual galaxy far, far away, there was a young, quite intelligent agent by the name of Siri. Her friend Eliza said, Siri, you're so intelligent and so helpful. You should go work for Apple as a personal assistant. So early on, if you would ask Siri about real-world technologies such as Eliza, she would, you know, kind of align herself with that. Obviously, it was these computer programmers making very specific decisions about how are we going to position this technology. Whoever was designing that was, was extremely smart because one thing that they understood was that people were going to push a voice-based technology to its limits, ask it ridiculous things, see what it can do, uh, because that's just part of human nature. This brings us back to the issue of ontological space. Designers were well aware that users wouldn't necessarily know how to categorize Siri. And so connecting her to existing concepts like Eliza was one way to help guide users thinking about her. If we think about it, we did not really interact with artificial intelligence or anything that seemed like it was artificial intelligence until we started seeing these smart assistants come along. And so when we encounter something new from a communication perspective, I'm using the information I have about other people I've encountered to, to sum them up. So all of a sudden we're, we're confronted when we're talking about Siri or Alexa with this talking woman voice that sounds very human. And so we're going to search in our brains, well, where have I encountered this before? How can I situate this? But for most people, they went to, in their minds, the only other examples of talking things or talking computers that they had. And that was science fiction. When we wrestle with the ambiguity of interacting with Siri, or really with the ambiguity of anything at all, we tend to try and reach for what is familiar. And in 2011, there wasn't a whole lot that was like Siri, at least not in the real world. Library computer. History files. Subject, former Governor Kodos of Tarsus IV, also known as Kodos the Executioner. Kodos the Executioner. Summary, Governor of Tarsus IV 20 Earth years ago. 
Alongside real-world Eliza and the fictional Star Trek computer, there were other examples that were, shall we say, less inspiring of public confidence. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. There are a lot of science fiction stories featuring male robots, like Hal, that harm or ultimately replace humans, becoming our robot overlords. So it's not surprising that Siri aligns herself with Eliza and not Hal. Hey Siri, are you friends with Hal 9000? I'd rather not talk about Hal. It was very clear that someone thought through, okay, how do we position this in such a way that it's positioned with the good, safe science fiction and the good existing technology? And it is is nothing like the negative science fiction, the dangerous science fiction. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. And so, and so that's where you kind of see this interesting overlap between science fiction and reality. These technologies are set up in what we call dyadic communication, one-on-one interactions. They're made to seem interpersonal. I think I'm just chatting to Alexa or Siri, but that's not the case because they are collecting data. Designers need us to feel comfortable and safe inviting these tools into our homes. In addition to soothing our anxieties about automation, designers need to also soothe our anxieties about a loss of privacy, power, and control over very personal aspects of our lives. It definitely does mask when you think you're just talking with another person or this thing is giving you information, It does mask what's going on behind the scenes. The fact that, you know, this data is recorded, um, this data is processed. It'll in some ways be connected to the user for a little while and then it's disconnected from them. Humans may be involved in processing that data. From a practical aspect, data is needed to make these things work. But the design of these technologies very much effaces that. With all this in mind, Siri's initial gendering as female in 2011 becomes pretty unsurprising. She is not going to take your job. She is not going to harm you. Like Eliza and like the Star Trek computer, she is a submissive, helpful female assistant. I do want to say, however, and this is really important to note because I think we focus so much on the fact that, you know, Siri in the United States was female, but Siri in other countries sometimes the default was male. And that had to do with understanding of social class and who would have also done those roles in other countries. So initially, Siri was more of a male voice in the UK to align more with the Ask Jeeves Butler stereotype. How can I help you? We see here that this repetition of social roles from humans being put into machines. When I worked as a temp assistant, I was also privy to a lot of data. Most assistants are, from the boss's meeting schedule to their email accounts to even personal data like their family members' birthdays. But when people interact with human assistants, they know that another person is looking at their information. 
Would we so freely interact with Siri and Alexa if we could see the way the conversations we're having weren't kept confidential by our fun and flirty feminine assistants? It's also curious that Siri, Alexa, and the rest try so hard to set themselves apart from controlling robot overlords, both in terms of their gender, female, and in terms of their role, assistant. They give us, the user, the sense that we are the executive. We are in control. But maybe they aren't that different from those sci-fi robot overlords after all. You're listening to Ideas and a documentary called A Harem of Computers from contributor Jennifer Jill Fellows. You can hear Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Before integrated circuits, before transistors, and before vacuum tubes, the word computer was a humble job description. It's been in use since at least the 1600s. In 1755, it entered the dictionary. In Samuel Johnson's A Dictionary of the English Language, computer is defined as a reckoner or accountant. Starting around the late 19th century, being a computer began to be seen as women's work. Computers worked in government surveying, architecture firms, for meteorologists and other scientists, and in observatories. Qualification. Expert mathematical knowledge, training in practical work. In a pamphlet published in Britain in 1898 titled A Dictionary of Employment Open to Women, Between the entries for artist's model and bathhouse attendant lies astronomical computer. Hours? These are irregular, as work is often required at all hours of the night. Jennifer Jill Fellows is a philosophy instructor at Douglas College in British Columbia. In her documentary, A Harem of Computers, she looks at the cultural history of feminized computers, how that history has shaped our current technology, and how our technology, in turn, might be shaping us. To really understand what it means for the job of computer to be feminized and what the consequences of that were, It's helpful to look at one early example from the 19th century, the Harvard Observatory under the direction of a man named Edward Pickering. 
astronomy in the United States gets its start in 1848. And it is people buying scientific quality telescopes and giving them to universities. Harvard is the lead. And there are a few others. David Greer is a technology consultant in Washington, D.C. Before that, he was based at George Washington University, where he researched international policy, tech policy, computer science, and statistics. One of the things that they discovered very quickly is that you can gather data from the telescopes far faster than you can do anything with it. And, and what we're dealing with primarily is positional astronomy. And so you have people that are just asking the question, where is this and what is this? And trying to distinguish stars from comets from planets. But even with those using manual methods, you could get a couple hundred numbers a night. When Pickering takes over the Harvard Observatory, they have a backlog of thousands of pages of observations that they aren't doing anything. They've just taken with them. There's no real science done with it. All that data is sitting there with nothing to do, while an increasing number of women are looking for work. It came to a crisis in the 1870s in Pickering's time because there were so many widows left over from the Civil War. And they were looking for jobs that would allow a woman to support herself, her child, and her mother. Three people. And in office work that usually involves typing and, and transcribing and um, stenography. But they were also looking for other things in accounting and in use of numbers. This is the time that women started entering offices in a large way. Working as a computer wasn't particularly glamorous. It's interesting, the diaries of the women, it's boring and they don't generally don't like it. And that's one of the things that come out of the computing field. It is boring work. And if you're not engaged in the subject, it's horrible. It was also low paid. Pickering bragged about it in the Journal of the American Astronomical Society. He was paying them as little as he could get away with. An article about women computers published in the Kansas City Star in 1900 reads, The average woman computer makes only $500 a year. According to the chief computer at Columbia University, science does not pay. Dressmaking or delicatessen keeping, millinery or haberdashery is far more remunerative. But this woman loves her business. This article hints at something else about the way this job was understood. There are three young women in the computing room at Columbia. They are mathematicians, pure and simple, and aspire to no flights in astronomy. Should they marry, they will compute no more. Women computers were let go if they got married. But that doesn't mean that women computers were discouraged from marrying. If an employer could encourage a man computer to marry a woman computer, or even better, get her pregnant, then this ensured that the man computer would stay at his job. Because if you marry a local girl, you're less likely to move if you're a guy. Industry did this. IBM was notorious for this, of putting young women from the plants and the offices around, basically in front of them, and saying, hi, marry one of these, and she'll lose her job soon enough, but we'll keep her on long enough until she gets pregnant. In this way, women computers were not only low-paid, they were also a good staff retention policy for their male counterparts. In general, these jobs were framed as dead-end positions, easily replaceable, where women were told not to have aspirations for more. They are seen as little more than the tools that would replace them. 
There was obviously something sexualized about working as a woman computer in the 19th century. In the case of Harvard Observatory, you can most clearly see this sexualization by looking at how Pickering and his colleagues referred to the women he employed. Can we also talk about the phrase Pickering's harem? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Pickering's harem, I think part of that is the professor's um, joy in having an entourage around them, someone who listens to them and follows their guidance and direction. I think Pickering was vulnerable on that score. And I think identifying them as a harem, because don't forget, Harvard is all male at this point and is largely viewed as a school where you wealthy families parked their sons for four years until they calmed down a little bit and could take over the family business. Calling them a harem minimized them and, again, put Pickering in a slightly exotic position, but it was the notion that he needed people to follow him, that he wanted people to follow him. There's a lot of things happening. One is I discovered since then, the um, Tales of a Thousand and One Nights in a new translation became wildly popular in the 19th century among English readers. And that popularized the concept of the harem. Pickering's harem. Of course, this was the era of Orientalism, an imaginary idea of the exotic East where powerful men had a harem of sexually subjugated concubines. A little much for a university prof and his assistants. Computer remained one of the few professional jobs open to women as other doors closed. While in the late 19th century United States, more and more women were entering the professional workforce, doctors, lawyers, scientists, by the 1930s, women professionals were actually in decline. A public backlash to women in higher education led to quotas, laws, and other barriers. But computer was seen as just feminine enough. So by the 30s, you're seeing real interest in mass production. And how do you organize an office to compute a large amount of numbers, either economic numbers? How do you guide ships across the ocean? How do you guide planes from one part of the country to the other? And that required the mass production of numbers. A mass production of numbers required the employment of a massive number of human computers. By World War II, the idea that computers were girls was firmly solidified in American consciousness. Of course, that doesn't mean that all human computers working in the United States were female. They weren't. Lots of men worked as computers. But the task begun by Pickering and his generation was completed here. The job of the computer was feminized. And this combination of sexualization and subservience made it into cultural depictions of digital computers. Captain's Lodge Supplemental. Computed, dear. Earlier, we heard a bit of the 1960s TV series Star Trek and the pleasant, helpful computer. Working. But of course, writers couldn't resist an episode where the computer gets a little flirty. Computer, you will not address me in that manner. Computed and recorded, dear. Mr. Spock, I ordered this computer and its interlinking systems repaired. I wouldn't mind so much if only it didn't get so 
affectionate. It also has an unfortunate tendency to giggle. Not to mention that episode where the Enterprise gets taken over by a harem of robot women. What a shame you're not real. We are programmed to function as human females. You are? Yes, my lord. The trope of the sexy female artificial assistant continues in The Stepford Wives from 1974. Rachel, the replicant from Blade Runner, whose job is literally secretary. And Edie, the ship's computer, from the Mass Effect series of video games. If she could touch you. How would you touch me? Her is a 2013 movie starring Scarlett Johansson in the titular role of Her. Johansson plays the voice of a digital assistant that the main character, played by Joaquin Phoenix, falls in love with. Won't you kiss me? What? Keep talking. Yeah, that's, those are the characteristic, the personality traits that come up a lot in our culture. She just has such a sexy voice and she's just so like, wow. <laughs> so calm and helpful yeah. and non-threatening. <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of the, the personality that was intentionally hard-coded into Siri. That trend of sexualization made its way into Siri. Here's Eleanor Fournier-Tombs again from the United Nations University Institute in Macau. UNESCO actually published this incredible report called I'd Blush If I Could, which basically detailed that if you um, called Siri a slut, Siri would say, respond, I'd blush if I could. I'd blush if I could. <laughs> and that's kind of like a representation of the kinds of responses that it would give, that the robot would give, basically. And obviously, this is intentional. Um, that's all these little jokes and all these little personality traits that were basically hard-coded. Hard-coded means that a programmer specifically chose what responses Siri would give to certain inputs. That means that Siri's programmers anticipated that users would sexualize her. The report from UNESCO called out Siri's responses as reinforcing sexism and potentially contributing to rape culture by normalizing the sexual harassment of women. In response, in 2019, Apple changed Siri's hard-coded responses. I won't respond to that. Other tech companies, like Amazon and Google, largely followed suit. But because of the way these assistants are built, changing hard-coded responses only changes so much. Siri is an, an application that generates language. So in AI, we say natural language generation. So basically, it speaks to you. And the way in which it does that is that it has all kinds of data that it's trained on, like, um, you know, reports and books and Wikipedia entries and all kinds of things like that, that help to construct responses to phrases so that the application will understand and interpret what you tell it and know the appropriate um, sequence of words, basically, um, to respond, to give you the information. And that has also been showed to propagate a lot of different stereotypes against women. The way natural language programs are trained is by feeding them a lot of data from the internet. And you know what there is a lot of on the internet? Sexism and misogyny. So guess what the program learns? 
For example, I did a study relatively recently, just last year, which uh, looked at the use of this in uh, translation algorithms with uh, Google Translate and Microsoft Bing Translate. There's a quick game that anyone can play to illustrate this. Go to a translation app and put in a phrase in English, like, she is a leader. She is a leader. And translate it into a language like Malay. Dia seorang pemimpin. Malay, like a few languages, has no gendered pronouns. So the translated version is something like, one is a leader, or they are a leader. Now, copy that Malay phrase and translate it back into English. Dia seorang pemimpin. What does Google Translate give you back? He is a leader. He is a leader. That's not a problem with the Malay language. It's a bias in the translation software based on years of biased language on the internet. He is a secretary. If you repeat the trick, you'll find that he is a secretary. Dia seorang setiausaha becomes she is a secretary. She is a secretary. He is a nurse becomes she is a nurse. And the one that really bugs me, she is a philosopher. Dia seorang ahli falsafa becomes he is a philosopher. He is a philosopher. Google Translate for every single one of these phrases selected the traditional stereotype role. They are taking care of the children. She is taking care of the children. Others have done this using other languages, so this is the way in which the algorithm work. This is an unintentional stereotyping in that, unlike this stereotyping of Siri making it sexy, Google didn't sit back and think, let's only propagate traditional gender norms in our translation algorithm. But they didn't really think that this was an issue. So they trained the algorithms on historical data that has all kinds of things in it, and just assumed, had the algorithm kind of assume that most of the time when you're talking about a leader, you're talking about a man. So we're just going to keep it like that, most likely to be accurate. That is extremely dangerous because it only uses the past. This stereotyping then isn't hard-coded. It is a digital legacy of the biased world we live in. Google is well aware of the problem, stating on their blog that Machine learning models for language translation can be skewed by societal biases reflected in their training data. So they are working to correct it. But that work isn't easy. She is a manager. And while they have solved the problem for some translations, o bir like Turkish to English, she is a manager, they haven't solved it all. And this isn't specifically a problem with translation software. Because the same data used to train translation software is also used to train a number of digital tools, including digital assistants. Biased data from the past is affecting how our technology treats gender today, something tech companies didn't anticipate. Those large chunks of data from the internet that digital tools are trained on are called corpora, huge amounts of data about language and vocabulary. And just like assistants inherit questionable things to say from these corpora, they also inherit problems with listening. The corpora 
on which devices like Siri and Alexa have been trained of a traditionally what we call a Midwestern corporate of accent. So our voice is coming out of the Midwestern U.S. And so that becomes the standard accent. Halcyon Lawrence is an associate professor of technical communication and information design at Towson University in Maryland in the United States. Any voice that deviates from that standard Yes, no longer gets recognized easily by these devices. Part of the development of, of speech technology is based on the promise of natural language use. In other words, that you don't have to speak any differently than you do. And that these devices would understand natural language as produced by human beings. What doesn't get investigated is whose language are we speaking about? So I am a native speaker of English. It's my first and only language. I grew up in the Caribbean in Trinidad and Tobago. Siri and Alexa might speak English with multiple accents. Choose the voice you'd like me to use. Choose the voice you'd like me to use. Choose the voice you'd like me to use. But that doesn't mean these digital assistants understand multiple English accents. It was striking to me that not just for personal assistance, but any speaking device. If I went an automated teller, if I called um, a banking system, especially if they asked me to spell my name, <laughs> that could take minutes <laughs> because they couldn't get past how I would spell, the, how I would pronounce the letter A. <laughs> and I have so many A's in my name. And so it started to occur to me that the promise of natural language wasn't a promise for my language, the way that I spoke. For Lawrence, Siri is not a pleasant and submissive assistant. She is a disciplinarian. As I described my inability to negotiate with the device and that the only acceptable solution to be able to be heard and to be understood was to change my accent, the term discipline came up and it really struck me that that's what it feels like. And people talk about it in different ways. I have a niece who said, from Jamaica, but studied in the, in the US, and she said, sometimes I feel like I have to switch my accent to be understood and I feel so inauthentic. Growing up in the Caribbean, in Trinidad in particular, there's a term that we called freshwater Yankee. And it was it, it was a derogatory term. We used it to describe anybody who left uh, to go to New York and came back speaking with an American accent. And, and that could happen over a period of years, but it could also happen over a weekend. And it was seen as derogatory because it seemed that that person was putting on airs. Um, they were talking like that to sound better. Um, and we understood it as sounding better because of our imperialist relationship with, with, the, with America. It was only when I became a student in the U.S. decades later and started doing this research that I see that talking white or talking like an American um, to be a matter of survival, particularly for immigrant populations. So that what we know is that people who have non-standard or non-native accents uh, experience discrimination in courts of law, 
experience discrimination in accessing housing, experience discrimination in school systems, um, professors who speak with an accent get rated um, poorly in their assessments. And so they're all of these spaces where the accent bias now becomes discrimination, yes, feeds into this discriminatory practice. And so one of the ways that immigrants survive in the U.S., and I don't know enough about Canada, but I can tell you, I'm sure it happens as well, where you, you begin to decide in situations where, for your own survival, you speak differently. And I think that is disciplinary, but it's a choice that we make. What is particularly challenging about speech technology is you aren't given a choice. You used to have to travel internationally to risk becoming a freshwater Yankee. But now, people can become a freshwater Yankee without ever walking out the front door. Your accent is so tied to your identity. Hearing a friend of mine speak in her Trinidadian accent into Siri and it not respond. And then in a minute, she switches to an American accent. It comes to life. And, and I'm sitting there looking, thinking, there was, a, there was a time when you had to go to the U.S. <laughs> and spend the weekend and come back speaking like a, an American. And yet this freshwater Yankee situation is, is right in your home, not having left your home in the Caribbean. So when you think about the way that English has become the lingua franca, because it is the language of the powerful, and it has been used to subjugate people, and to see then that repeated disciplinary action happening in a digital space with a device that seems benign like Siri and Alexa, yes? What we're really seeing is this digital colonialism that has been encoded, that this is a standard that even native speakers like myself are being told your English is not good enough. It's hard to think of digital assistance, the long-awaited sci-fi promise of the future, as something that is holding us back, imprisoning us in the past. But that is exactly what Eleanor Fournier-Toombs thinks is happening. Pointing out our historical biases and inequality. And at the same time, I think the problem is that there's a lot of these biases that are happening that we're not aware of or we can't, we're not noticing. And that's what's really stalling society. And it has a really big, big impact on women's lives. So one example that I, you know, I find very striking is that um, until 2018, Amazon was using um, an AI algorithm that would basically filter through applicant resumes, like a pre-selection. Um, and then it was found that this algorithm actually downgraded female applicants. So specifically, if women had been to uh, traditional f- female colleges in the United States, like Barnard in New York, or if uh, you wrote, you know, I've been captain of the female sports team. So you had the word female in your resume, you were rejected. So, well, which helps to explain why a, a company like Amazon would have less, less women. 
but this was pointed out and this was only done through a whistleblower then you know an investigative journalism initiative and finally it came out and amazon dropped the algorithm but we don't know how long they were using this um, and we don't know how many women's lives affected by this algorithm or by other similar algorithm um, amazon is most certainly not the only company in the world there's tons of companies that use these algorithms and so if we as a society are trying to evolve and trying to have you know new norms for gender uh, and have women be more expressed in society and take more leadership roles and be more involved in technology development or conversely have men take greater part in care work you know have men be early childhood educators which is still a huge challenge like men face a lot of barriers to be able to have that kind of work or men be babysitters of children you know this kind of thing is actually very very challenging um we can't do it because more and more of the tools that we're using just propagate these stereotypes and so they influence our culture and sort of slow us down fun and flirty siri always here to help wasn't born in a vacuum in a world in which not that long ago harems of computers existed to bolster male egos siri was deliberately designed to mirror our past back at us in a world where fears of automation and loss of privacy are everywhere, Alexa was designed to make us feel empowered, even while suggesting we shop at Amazon-owned Whole Foods. In a world in which colonial forces are still very much at work, Siri and Alexa both replicate biases about which English accents are acceptable, assisting some people, and disciplining others. And maybe that is the legacy of digital assistance after all. By mirroring us back at ourselves, they offer us an opportunity for self-reflection. But only if we are willing to look. You are listening to Ideas and to a documentary called A Harem of Computers by Jennifer Jill Fellows, with help from Matthew Lazen Ryder. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on Facebook or Twitter or on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcasts. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.